I have two brief readings to share with you today. The first comes from Yev Sanyo, who was a lead negotiator for the Philippines uh, at the UN climate change negotiations last November. Uh, and this is an excerpt from a lengthy speech that he gave uh, to the UN in those negotiations the day after Typhoon Haiyan uh, devastated a large part of his country. To anyone who continues to deny the reality that is climate change, I dare you to get off your ivory tower and away from the comfort of your armchair. I dare you to go to the islands of the Pacific, the islands of the Caribbean, and the islands of the Indian Ocean and see the impacts of rising sea levels, to the mountainous regions of the Himalayas and the Andes, to see communities confronting glacial floods, to the Arctic, where communities grapple with the fast-dwindling polar ice caps, to the large deltas of the Mekong, the Ganges, the Amazon, and the Nile, where lives and livelihoods are drowned, to the hills of Central America that confront similar monstrous hurricanes, to the vast savannas of Africa, where climate change has likewise become a matter of life and death as food and water become scarce. Not to forget the massive hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico and the eastern seaboard of North America. And if that is not enough, you may want to pay a visit to the Philippines right now. Super Typhoon Haiyan made landfall in my family's hometown and the, devastating, the devastation is staggering. I struggle to find words even for the images that we see from the news coverage. I struggle to find words to describe how I feel about the losses and damages we have suffered from this cataclysm. The next reading is, is actually more of a, a quote that I heard uh, in a meeting of civil society members working on climate change during these negotiations. And this quote comes from a Philippine climate justice activist. Thank you for your sympathy. We don't need any more sympathy. What we need is solidarity, not just in the form of humanitarian aid, but also through urgent climate action. So from here on out, all, all the words I'll speak are mine. Um, thank you for, give, uh, for having me, for giving me the opportunity to join your community uh, this week, uh, for coming out on Super Bowl Sunday and, and giving me the opportunity to speak with you. As many of you know, I work with Brenna uh, at ActionAid USA in Washington, DC. For those of you who don't know, ActionAid is an international development and human rights organization. We're active in about 45 countries around the world. And we work to transform the systems and the structures that create and perpetuate global inequality and poverty. Now, my work is specifically on international climate justice. And that's what I understand you've asked me to talk about. So, I'm gonna start with climate justice, but I'm actually gonna use it as a jumping off point to talk about something much broader. Now we talk about fixing climate change, and we think about windmills and solar panels, but because we as a society have twiddled our thumbs for so long about addressing this problem, spewing more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, at this point, fixing climate change really means transforming the entire global economy. Fixing climate change, if we're serious about it, means fundamental system change. Now that kind of change doesn't come easy, and I'd like to talk a bit about our roles as citizens, as members of congregations, and as human beings in pushing for changes we believe in. But I'll start with climate change uh, and climate justice. So first, what do I mean when I say 
I work on climate justice. Well, just like environmental justice activists are concerned with how air and water pollution affects poor and marginalized communities um, more than others, climate justice activists are concerned with how climate impacts uh, affect less privileged communities much more than others. And climate change is a global problem and it's exacerbating existing global inequalities. Most of us in the United States benefit from a high consumption, high emissions lifestyle. In 2011, General Electric estimated that Americans would consume 11 million kilowatt hours of energy just to power their TVs during the Super Bowl. Now that's just TVs, that's not travel for fans to fly or drive across the country to the game, it's not how much energy the stadium itself consumes during those few hours, just TVs. By comparison, the World Bank estimated that that same year, the entire country of Haiti would consume that same amount of energy in, about, it would take them about 12 days. 12 days, 11 million kilowatts of energy, kilowatt hours of energy. Now one more statistic, just to drive this point home. In 2010, the International Energy Agency estimated that New York State consumed about as much energy as the entirety of Sub-Saharan Africa, excluding South Africa. That's about 19 and a half million people in New York State, almost 800 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa. Same amount of energy. So we enjoy the fruits of this lifestyle while people in huge swaths of the global south are still living very low emissions lifestyles. But perversely, it's those folks in places like the Philippines that are beginning to pay the price for our excess. They're the ones who are feeling the impacts of climate, uh, of climate change first and most acutely, and unlike us, they don't have the resources to adequately cope with those impacts. And that's the fundamental injustice. Our actions in the privileged North are leading to terrible impacts that are falling largely on those in the global South. Now, even though I work on climate justice policy, I'm fortunate to work for an organization that's committed to grounding our policy work uh, in the communities with whom we work. And that's the communities that are living in poverty in the global south. So as a core part of my work, I've had the opportunity to visit several communities for whom climate change isn't a theoretical or political debate. Uh, it's a fact of life. So I wanna bring some of those stories and voices into this room, because uh, their physical distance from us is one of the things that makes it, to be honest, easy for us to ignore them. One of the first places I visited was Bangladesh, and this makes sense because Bangladesh is one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world. Uh, it's affected by practically every kind of climate impact you can imagine, floods, droughts, cyclones, rising sea levels, you name it. I visited communities on the southern coast of Bangladesh who are constantly weathering cyclones whose livelihoods are being threatened by salt water from the ocean encroaching on freshwater rivers. Those rivers, that saltwater encroaching affects both agriculture and fishing, which are two of the major sources of both food and income in the region. One of the communities I visited, and these communities are remarkably resilient in the face of all these challenges, and one of the communities that I visited had managed to build a makeshift seawall to keep the water surges out of their cultivated land, but it had already been breached three times in the last few years when I visited, and wasn't likely to stand up uh, if another cyclone hit. I'll never forget walking 
along that seawall, which was really just a mud embankment with some kind of wood fencing to, to try to stem the erosion. And the seemingly peaceful river was on my left, and these huge rice paddies were on my right. Uh, those rice paddies were the source of an entire community's food and income, and that little mud embankment was all that was keeping the community going, all that was keeping uh, this, this river from overflowing and destroying those rice paddies. That embankment was doing the job for now, but when the next flood or storm came and, and we all knew that there would be one coming at some point, who knew what, would, what was going to happen? Another place I visited was Rwanda, which is just an incredibly beautiful, green, lush, mountainous country. But like much of Sub-Saharan Africa, Rwanda is struggling with the effects of climate change in the form of less and less predictable rainfall patterns. Now, For us, something like that is an inconvenience. For folks living in Rwanda who are dependent on rain-fed agriculture, it makes a difference between whether you go to bed with an empty stomach or a full stomach. I spent some time with members of one farming community in western Rwanda, and all they wanted to tell me about was how the seasonal rains had been coming at all the wrong times for the last few years. They don't know anymore when to plant their crops. Too often, there's not enough rain to grow anything. And then when it does rain, it rains too much, and the fields flood. These folks don't really know the ins and outs of climate science. But they definitely know that something has changed in recent years, and those changes are making their lives harder. So how does all this connect to my policy work here in DC and at the international level? Well, the international community does have a process for trying to address climate justice. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or just the UN Climate Negotiations, uh, and that's where I do a lot of my advocacy work. It's actually a remarkably progressive piece of international law. It explicitly calls on the rich industrialized North to take the lead on addressing climate change because we're the ones responsible for causing it. It's a space where developing countries have a voice in negotiations and sometimes a voice that reaches the broader public, as was the case with Philippine negotiator Yebsano's speech, a piece of which we heard earlier. But unfortunately, the US and other rich countries have more and more been refusing to take the lead in addressing climate change and refusing to negotiate in good faith at the UN climate talks. And it's in no small part because our governments simply don't feel any pressure from their citizens to do so. They're much more likely to listen to fossil fuel industry lobbyists who control huge sums of money and political weight rather than a general population that's split on whether climate change is even a real problem at all. So that's what has to change actually more important than any of the policy work that I do here in, uh, or down in DC or in the UN, is work that can be done right here to get our fellow citizens to care. Recently, Pope Francis was moved by a tragedy that struck Eritrean and Somali migrants, asylum seekers, to talk about what he called the globalization of indifference. He talked about a culture of comfort that leads us to be insulated from human misery. When something bad happens to people half a world away, in our society it's easily ignored with no real consequences for us. Even when we do notice it, well, it's happening half a world away. It doesn't really have anything to do with us, we think. We certainly didn't have anything to do with causing it. Why should we care? Well, here's why we should care. Because we believe 
in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Because at the end of the day, we do have a responsibility for what is happening over there. The science of climate change is telling us is that it's a direct result of our collective actions. We reject that this doesn't have anything to do with us, and we reject a way of life that focuses only on ourselves and overlooks principles of justice, equity, and compassion, and respect for the interdependent web of existence. So caring about an injustice is the first step to changing it, but we all know that it's not the only step. And I'll be honest, there are times when I go about my work, and, and more times that I'd like to admit, that I feel like we're just banging our heads against a wall. Uh, that the public indifference to global justice and to climate change is just too deeply entrenched, that the powerful interests who are opposed to any real transformational change are just too strong, and that the system change we need is too radical to even be talked about in our cultural and political context. I think anyone who's worked for transformative social change, be it professionally or in your free time or, or just kind of in the margins of a busy life, has felt this kind of powerlessness before. We know that we won't get any kind of transformational change unless there's a real grassroots demand for it. As Frederick Douglass said, power conceives nothing without a demand. Transformative change to address the climate crisis will hurt a lot of powerful interests, and so it just won't happen without a mass of people demanding it. And speaking of Frederick Douglass, uh, this weekend is the first weekend of Black History Month, so I thought it would be appropriate to bring in uh, some thoughts and a few quick lessons from the civil rights movement, uh, which I'll refer to from here on as the black freedom struggle because it was about much more than just civil rights. Many of the accomplishments of the black freedom struggle were unimaginable even just a few years before they happened. So even though those involved in that struggle hardly won everything that they set out to achieve, how did they accomplish so much so quickly? According to the scholar Doug McAdam, who studied the black freedom struggle in depth, there are three necessary ingredients for a mass movement for social change. First, you need expanding political opportunities, some change in the political status quo that allows new voices to be heard. For the black freedom struggle, there were long-term shifts in the southern economy, such as the decline of cotton, uh, that created new opportunities for African Americans in the south to exercise power. Second, you need institutional strength. Community institutions provide spaces where organization uh, and solidarity work can take place, as well as much needed human and financial resources. Now for the black freedom struggle, the sources of institutional power were black churches, student groups at historically black colleges and universities, and local chapters of civic organizations like the NAACP. And finally, you need uh, something that McAdam calls cognitive liberation which is essentially a collective consciousness that change is possible. The Newsweek magazine conducted a survey in 1963 at the height of the black freedom struggle in which African Americans were asked whether they would be willing to march in a demonstration, take part in a sit-in, go to jail, or picket a store. And I, I think this is incredible. 50% answered yes to each one of those questions. Think about that for a second. Nearly 50% of African Americans said they would be willing to go to jail for the black freedom struggle. These are everyday people. These are not leaders of the civil rights movement. These are everyday people. These are folks who seriously believe that their actions could make a difference uh, and whose bravery and dedication should inspire our struggle for climate justice. So of those three factors, 
that I mentioned. We probably have the least control over the first one, which was expanding political opportunities. Many folks have thought that increasing extreme weather events like Hurricane Sandy or Typhoon Haiyan might shift public opinion enough to present a real opportunity for climate activists. That hasn't quite happened yet, but it very well could. Uh, and we should take every opportunity to connect the dots between those kind of individual events around the world and the climate crisis. But in any case, I think we should really proactively work on the latter two factors as well to ensure that when those new political opportunities do arise, we're ready to take advantage of them. So the second factor was institutional strength. And this is where I think congregations and churches and communities of faith have a key role to play. So thanks to the seventh principle, the statement of conscience uh, from 2006 that we heard earlier in the service, and organizations like the UU Ministry for Earth, the Unitarian or as a Unitarian congregation, you have a lot of existing institutional structures that you can plug into and strengthen and draw strength from. Of course, while you have access to those structures, they don't run themselves. It's, it happens in every congregation, and, and for that matter, in, in every organization, that a small number of people do the lion's share of the work. Uh, but to truly build institutional power, more of us have to dig deeper to support the institutions that we have. Now finally, cognitive liberation. When people believe they're powerless to change something, they're likely to keep their heads down and just make do with life as it is. But when people believe they have collective power, that's when real movements for change can come into being. Doug McAdam found that people who are socially well-connected through churches and community organizations are much more likely to experience cognitive liberation. As a community of faith, we have the grounding to make a compelling ethical argument for system change in the face of climate change. The Unitarian principles present a powerful moral call for climate action. That's the kind of call that, at least in theory, can reach across cultural and political boundaries. Even though we live in an era that's seen declining participation in churches and civic organizations, the congregation is still one of the most important spaces in which people build community. System change doesn't happen without collective action, and collective action doesn't happen without community. So even though we might feel dwarfed by the enormity of this problem we're facing, there are reasons to keep plugging away at solutions. For climate justice, that could mean getting involved in a fossil fuel divestment campaign. There are divestment campaigns that are really growing in strength and momentum within the United States as we speak, uh, particularly on campuses, but also beyond just campuses and student groups. Uh, it could mean connecting with the UU Ministry for Earth, which has a very active environmental justice program, and working to broaden that environmental justice program to start talking about global environmental justice and global climate justice as well. It could mean supporting policy organizations like my own, or it could mean supporting grassroots organizations that are fighting local struggles. It could simply mean just sitting down with others, uh, having a conversation, reflecting on what you can do to collectively push for the system change that we need. There are structures built into communities like this to do that work, and that's what makes us powerful. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the arc of the moral, just, uh, of the moral universe is long, but that it bends toward justice. That arc is far longer, that bend far more gradual and far less smooth than we'd like it to be. And for climate justice, sometimes it seems like we haven't even begun to see the curve yet. But that's all the more reason to keep pushing for it with all of the collective energy, creativity, faith, 
and will that we have.